Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. The court has had an incredibly busy week with three opinion days and the release of several major decisions. GC is out of the office this week enjoying some well-deserved R&R, so to help me break everything down, I'm pleased to be joined today by my colleague John Malcolm, who is the director of the Mies Center here at Heritage. John, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's my pleasure. I, while while Giancarlo is off gallivanting, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are a more than able uh, fill-in, and so I'm looking forward to today's episode. Now, we have a busy episode this week, but before we dive into opinions, the court did agree to hear two new cases next term. The first one is U.S. XREL Polanski versus Executive Health, and the question the court is being asked to resolve is whether the government has the authority to dismiss a False Claims Act suit after initially declining to proceed with the action, and what standard applies if the government has that authority. The second new case the court agreed to hear is Bittner versus United States. The question in that case is whether a violation under the Bank Secrecy Act is the failure to file an annual report of foreign bank and financial accounts, no matter the number of foreign accounts, or whether there is a separate violation for each individual account that was not properly reported. All right. So time for opinions now, right? That's absolutely right. And we have a lot of new opinions this week, so we won't have time to cover all of them. uh, But I think we'll talk about the ones that we find most interesting today. Uh, So, John, uh, if you don't mind, could you start us off and tell us about Carson versus Macon? Sure. Uh, So this was a six to three decision, uh, which the majority opinion was written by Chief Justice John Roberts. He was joined uh, by Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh and Barrett. Uh, And in this case, the court held that Maine's non-sectarian requirement for otherwise generally available tuition assistance payments violates the First Amendment's free exercise clause. So by way of background, Maine has a tuition assistance program uh, for parents who live in school districts that don't operate a secondary school of their own or don't contract with a particular school in another district. And there are actually quite a few of those in rural Maine. Under the program, parents could use any private or public school for their children, but they could only use the funds at schools that did not include religious education as part of its curriculum. Parents challenged this prohibition as violating the Free Exercise Clause, the Establishment Clause, and the Equal Protection Clauses. Uh, Maine defended its program, saying that it was not discriminating against religiously affiliated schools based on their status, but rather was prohibiting those funds from being used or being put to a religious use uh, by funding religious education. The district court uh, and the First Circuit agreed with, uh, with Maine, uh, but the Supreme Court did disagreed and reversed, finding that Maine's program could not survive strict scrutiny and that the principles it had applied in two previous cases, Trinity Lutheran uh, and Espinoza, resolved the case. The court also noted that the First Circuit's attempt to distinguish between a religious status prohibition and a religious use prohibition was unpersuasive. 
Justice Stephen Breyer, joined by Justices Kagan and in part by Justice Sotomayor, uh, dissented, arguing that the majority had not recognized the, in quote, play in the joints between the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause, and that states should enjoy a degree of freedom to navigate what Breyer said was their competing demands. Justice Sonia Sotomayor also filed a separate dissent, lamenting, in her view, the fact that the court continues to dismantle the wall of separation between church and state. Well, the thing that stood out to me about this case, John, imagine that a religious school that actually teaches religion <laughs> as part Shocking, of its curriculum. I know. Who, who would have thought? Uh, but this case, I believe, was brought by our friends over at the Institute for Justice and First Liberty and was a great win uh, for religious freedom. And for school choice. Yeah. Absolutely. Next up, we have Berger versus NAACP. This was an eight to one decision by Justice Neil Gorsuch with only Justice Sonia Sotomayor dissenting. The issue in this case was whether North Carolina's Republican legislative leaders could intervene in a case under federal rule of civil procedure 24A2, say that three times fast, uh, to defend the state's voter ID law, where the Democratic state attorney general, though opposed to that law as a political matter was technically defending it. The Supreme Court said that these legislative leaders could intervene. According to the court, FRCP 24A2 allows parties to intervene if they have an interest relating to the issues raised in the case, such that if the case is disposed of without their presence, their interest will be impaired or impeded, and the existing parties in the case will not adequately represent their interests. A North Carolina statute explicitly gave the these legislative leaders standing under state law to intervene to defend the constitutionality of the state's laws. The court said that when a state such as North Carolina chooses to allocate authority among different officials who do not answer to one another, different interests and perspectives all arise and are all important to the administration of state government. Uh, appropriate respect for these realities mean that federal courts should rarely question that a state's interest will be practically impaired or impeded if its duly authorized representatives are excluded from participating in federal litigation challenging a state law. The court said lower federal courts had improperly applied a presumption that the other parties in the case would adequately represent the legislators' interest when they held that the legislators could not overcome this presumption. Now, Justice Sotomayor dissented, claiming that the court erred in implying that the state attorney general's defense, uh, who again claimed to be defending the law, even though he was vocally opposed to it, uh, fell below the minimal standards of adequacy. Yeah, that's an important case in terms of making sure that someone who actually believes in a law that has passed uh, has an opportunity to adequately defend that law in court. Yeah, absolutely, especially uh, when state law specifically provides uh, for these individuals uh, to be able to defend that state's law. Right. Uh, so next up, we have Vega versus, I assume it's pronounced Tico. Uh, and that's a six to three decision that was written by Justice Alito. It was joined by uh, the Chief Justice and Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. And the court held that a party cannot seek damages under 42 U.S. Code Section 1983 from a police officer who failed to administer Miranda warnings before obtaining his statement. 
Here, L.A. County Deputy Sheriff Carlos Vegas uh, questioned Terrence Tico about a sexual assault allegation at Tico's place of work. The statement was later introduced against Tico at his trial for sexual assault, but he was acquitted. Tico later sued Vega for violating his Miranda rights by not administering its warnings before questioning him. The Ninth Circuit held that Tico could sue Vega for damages under Section 1983, but the Supreme Court reversed. Alito explained that Section 1983 provides a cause of action for a party who has been deprived of a constitutional right by a state official, but that a Miranda violation is not tantamount to a violation itself of of the Fifth Amendment's self-incrimination clause. He said that Miranda created merely a prophylactic rule which cannot provide the basis for a Section 1983 claim. Justice Elena Kagan, joined by Justices Breyer and Sotomayor, dissented, concluding that the court's precedents deemed violations of Miranda to also be a violation of the self-incrimination clause itself, which would allow a Section 1983 claim to proceed. Oh, very interesting case. Now, next up, we have two big cases uh, that we've been waiting to come down for many, many weeks. And the first of those is New York State Rifle and Pistol versus Bruin. Uh, it was a six to three decision by Justice Thomas, and he was joined by the Chief Justice and Justices Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. In this case, the court held that New York's proper cause requirement for issuing a handgun permit violates the 14th Amendment by preventing law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms in public. Uh, Law-abiding New York residents applied for unrestricted licenses to carry a handgun in public based on a generalized self-defense interest, but those applications were denied for failure to satisfy the state's proper cause requirement because they failed to present evidence such as a protective order, that someone posed a particular threat to them. The lower courts sustained New York's proper cause standard as, quote, substantially related to the achievement of an important governmental interest. The Supreme Court reversed, though, finding that New York's regulation is inconsistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. The court also rejected the two-step framework developed by the lower courts for analyzing Second Amendment challenges, finding that the court's previous decisions, Heller and McDonald, centered the methodology on constitutional text and history and expressly rejected any interest-balancing inquiry akin to intermediate scrutiny. The court said that the plain text of the Second Amendment protects the petitioner's right to carry handguns outside of the home in public for self-defense. The court concluded that apart from a few late 19th century outlier jurisdictions, American governments have not broadly prohibited the public carry of commonly used firearms for personal self-defense or generally required law-abiding responsible citizens to, quote, demonstrate a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community to carry arms in public. While joining the majority opinion, Justices Alito, Kavanaugh, and Barrett each wrote separate concurrences 
to express their views on related issues that lower courts are likely to face in the future. Justice Breyer, joined by Justices Kagan and Sotomayor, dissented, arguing that the result in this case did not automatically follow from Heller. In his view, the historical examples of regulations similar to New York's licensing scheme are legion, and courts must be permitted to consider the state's interest in preventing gun violence and the effectiveness of the contested law in achieving that interest. Yeah, I think it's the first time the courts issued a major opinion in the Second Amendment arena since, you know, McDonald in in 2010. It was about time. And and I'm glad to see that the Second Amendment is not being treated as, you know, sort of an afterthought or the kid's sister of the Bill of Rights. Absolutely. And I don't know if you've seen it, John, but there was some interesting fallout uh, after this case. The advocate in the case, Paul Clement, uh, who won uh, the case for his clients, His law firm actually announced afterward that it was no longer going to take any gun cases or allow any of its lawyers to uh, advocate in gun cases. And so Paul and his colleague Aaron Murphy actually left the firm and are going to start their own firm. Yeah, they are. Yeah, Clement and Murphy, and I wish them uh, all the best of luck. I'm I'm sure they will have no uh, trouble uh, attracting clients and talented lawyers who want to work with them. They are two outstanding advocates. Absolutely. And I say good for them uh, for standing up for their uh, their beliefs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so next we have Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And this is, of course, the big decision that we've all been waiting for. Uh, we had a preview of the decision uh, when a draft opinion was leaked earlier this year. Just a terrible thing. Uh, Justice Samuel Alito's draft majority opinion actually held up remarkably well with most uh, of its surviving intact in the final version that the court released today. Uh, In the now officially released majority opinion by by Justice Alito, it was joined uh, by Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. And the court has now overruled the 1973 case of Roe versus Wade and the 1992 case of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And the court has now held that the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Accordingly, the authority to regulate abortion is now going to be returned to the people and to their elected representatives. So as many of you know, Mississippi passed a law restricting abortions with certain exceptions uh, for medical emergencies or severe fetal abnormalities after 15 weeks of pregnancy. The district court in the Fifth Circuit enjoined that law as violating the Supreme Court's abortion precedents, but the court has now upheld Mississippi's law and overturned those precedents. In overruling both Roe and Casey, The court said that a proper application of stare decisis requires an assessment of the strength of the grounds on which Roe was based, something the Casey decision failed to do. The court said that the Constitution makes no express reference to a right to obtain an abortion and that abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition and therefore is not an essential component of ordered liberty. Therefore, it is not protected by the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. The court continued that until the latter part of the 20th century, there was no support in American law for a constitutional right to obtain an abortion, and no state recognized such a constitutional right either. At common law, abortion was criminal and unlawful, and that consensus endured until 1973 when Roe was decided. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote a concurring opinion, adding that the concept of an abortion guarantee lurking in the due process uh, clause under the concept of substantive due process is wrong. 
And that substantive due process is indeed an oxymoron <laughs> that lacks any basis in the Constitution. Classic Justice Thomas. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh also wrote a concurring opinion stating that regardless of one's views on abortion, issues surrounding the morality of abortion or what public policy should be with respect to abortion were not before the court. The only issue before the court is what the Constitution says about abortion. And he added that the Constitution takes no sides on the issue of abortion and that the text of the Constitution does not refer to or encompass abortion. Chief Justice Roberts wrote an opinion concurring in the judgment only, stating his belief that the court should take a more measured approach. While agreeing with the majority that the viability line established by Roe and Casey should be discarded under a straightforward stare decisis analysis because it never made much sense, he would simply have upheld the Mississippi ah, sorry the Mississippi statute. <laughs> say that five say, times. Ah, fast. I'll try my best. <laughs> he would have upheld the Mississippi statute because it gives uh, a woman three months to obtain an abortion well beyond the point uh, which is considered late to discover a pregnancy. Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan wrote a joint dissent criticizing what they referred to as the majority's cavalier approach to overturning Roe and Casey, which they believe have protected the liberty and equality of women for half a century, respecting a woman as an autonomous being and granting her full equality, which means giving her substantial choice over this most personal and consequential of life's decisions. Well, that certainly is a big decision, and I think it was a a great decision, a great day for our country, and it will be very interesting uh, to see how things play out in the states going forward. Certainly will. Next up is our interview for this week with Ohio's Solicitor General, Ben Flowers. We're pleased to be joined today by Ben Flowers, who currently serves as Ohio's Solicitor General. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Of course. We're so glad you're here today. Now, before we dive into your legal career, Ben, I wanted to ask you, what made you want to be a lawyer? I sort of backed into it. I uh, I went to college at uh, The Ohio State University. And we won't in, hold it against you. Yeah, <laughs> majored, in, uh, majored in philosophy, uh, which was great in terms of training me to think like a lawyer, though I didn't go into it with the goal of becoming a lawyer. Uh, but with the degree, I started looking for things um, that I might enjoy, and um, I liked writing, I liked arguing, and uh, obviously <laughs> that led me to the law, and it's worked out. Well, great. Now, after uh, you went to undergrad at Ohio State, you attended the University of Chicago for law school, right? I did. Uh, what was that experience like at the University of Chicago? It was a fantastic place to study law. Um, the thing I'm, I'm very grateful for about my Chicago education uh, is that it truly was a place that valued the exchange of ideas. Nothing was off limits. Mm. Uh, You never felt like you had to censor yourself to earn a grade. Um, Professors to one another and to the students really did encourage debate and independent thought. You'd have to back up your ideas. They'd push back, uh, which was was also good. Um, But it really did prepare me for a career in the law in that I was used to having to defend things I thought about. Nothing was taken for granted um, so that when you're dealing with partners at a law firm or a judge in a clerkship um, or now courts when I'm arguing a case, I'm sort of able to think through the structure of an argument and where the weaknesses are likely to be and what needs to be buttoned up and where I'm solid. Uh, It it really was a fantastic experience. And then I had mentors there like uh, Richard Epstein, uh, Jonathan Mazur, just uh, phenomenal professors who really helped um, 
really helped me in terms of you know recommendations with getting my career uh, going and and just instilling in me I think a love for the law and the the process I'm talking about debate. That's fantastic. Now, after you graduated from the University of Chicago, you clerked for Judge Sandra Ikuda on the Ninth Circuit. Are there any special memories you have from your clerkship? Oh, I have so many. Judge Ikuda was a is a phenomenal jurist and, and was a phenomenal boss. And I actually, in my current role, try to model some of what I do after what she did. Um, the thing I admired so much about her is, A, she worked harder than anyone else in the office. She was there at 7.30 a.m. every day, if I recall, and left after we did at 7 p.m. She dove into the record of literally every single case, no matter how small, no matter how big. And she had an open-door policy of you know, encouraging her clerks to come into her office and talk through ideas. She encouraged pushback. Uh, and it really fostered an environment that was fun, that was rewarding, and we actually learned a lot because – Frequently, I pushed back, and she was right. <laughs> she's, a, she's a better lawyer um, and had a lot more experience. And, 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 but just through that process and observing how she did her work, um, I gained a lot of respect for the judicial process and just learned a lot about how to be a good writer, a good lawyer. Um, and then she's just a great person. I mean, I still keep in touch with her, uh, still call her every few months. That's fantastic. Um, you know, she, in, in, in terms of special memories, I guess one thing I should add is at the time, uh, my wife and I had uh, no kids, but we did have a dog, Beanie. And uh, Judge loved Beanie, so I was able to bring her into chambers on the weekends. Uh, <laughs> what type of dog? Uh, she was a mix. Um, and, uh, and it's, you know, she would come in. Last I checked, last time I was in chambers, there was still a little stain from one of her bones on the, on the carpet <laughs> in my old office. I also will say... Uh, you know, I grew up an Ohio State fan too, a football fan. I'm so, so sorry. Well, <laughs> it's, good, it's good to win, but we, we, you know, growing up, the Rose Bowl was sort of the oh, the thing you always dreamed about. And uh, her chambers are in Pasadena, and my office overlooked the Arroyo, the Valley, where the where the Rose Bowl is. Oh wow! So it's just an absolutely beautiful view. I'll probably never have a prettier uh, <laughs> office uh, view in my entire life. So that w- that was wonderful as well. Excellent. Were there any traditions uh, that Judge Ikuda maintained with her clerks or any traditions that her uh, now extended clerk family maintained? So one thing she did that uh, I, I imagine it's still going on. Maybe you can have her on an episode. But um, she when in the Ninth Circuit, they sit in multiple courthouses. Sure. And uh, so when they would sit in Pasadena, she would host wine and cheese events. Uh, her husband, Ed, actually would make his own wine. So it would be Akuda produced wine, and she would invite the other judges and their clerks to come and wow. mingle. And it was a, it was an interesting way and kind of a laid back setting to get to meet uh, other peers and then, of course, some judges. Sure, um, she would sometimes come out and have lunch with us. We would often eat in the in the chambers uh, if we weren't outside. It was often nice in California, sure. but um, so those are the traditions that come to mind. Those sound like great traditions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, after you clerked for Judge Ikuda, you went on and you clerked for Justice Scalia on the Supreme Court. What was that experience like? Oh, just surreal. Um, it was, you know, obviously Justice Scalia is one of these names we're going to talk about long after you and I are gone. Right. Um, so to get to watch him in action was uh, really amazing. Much like Judge Ikuda, he fostered an environment in which 
you felt free to push back and really test ideas. You know, he was a professor at Chicago, and I right. can see how he would have fit in there. Um, it, th- again, it made it really rewarding because obviously the judge makes the ultimate decision, but um, he, I really saw – you hear a lot about judges saying we do law and not policy, and it's common today to be skeptical of that. But I'm not skeptical of it because I, I saw it done. I saw cases in which I know he did not like the policy outcome uh, and would push back on us when we're trying to say, well, that's what the law requires. And when he was convinced that that's what the law required, that's what he did. Um, I can't share which cases those are, sure. of course, but I, I know for a fact they exist. Um, so that was a really rewarding part of that process was seeing, no, it's not just politics all the way down, the common – Right. especially today, sort of law professor Twitter refrain. Right. Um, there really is a discipline here. And he was just fun to be around. I mean, he's just, you know, you've seen his speeches and how he behaved at oral argument. He was just a very colorful guy, very, just a big personality. And it was a lot of fun to be around him. Do any particular memories stand out from your time clerking for him? <laughs> oh, quite a few. Most of them I probably can't repeat. Um <laughs> But um, because of confidentiality, yeah, not because yeah, exactly, they were off exactly. color no, or nothing, anything. Nothing off color, <laughs> just confidentiality. Um, you know, w- w- one that stands out that I'll just never forget, and I have a picture to memorialize it, is my wife and I had our first child uh, when I was clerking, mm-hmm. uh, our son Calvin. And uh, we brought him into the chambers. You know, Justice Scalia has nine kids and uh, 36 grandkids, I think, and counting. And uh, so he's very familiar with kids. Calvin started to get a little fussy, and the justice was holding him, and he was kind of, you know, rocking him and quacking at him to get him uh, to cheer up. So just seeing that sort of very, you know, personal experience. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he he was just, again, just like a fun person to be around. Um, That's fantastic. I remember at the end of the year also, uh, you know, the term I clerked there was probably the worst term of his career. It was... Uh, the year the court decided Obergefell and King mm-hmm. B. Burwell, and I could go on down the line. Uh, but, you know, he showed us you could be sort of a, a happy warrior, and even when things aren't working out, keep your head up and do the best you can. At the end of the term, we had a little um, celebration, I guess, in chambers with uh, a bottle of scotch someone brought in and a bunch of cigars and some of the clerks from the other chambers, I remember, came in, and this is smoke-filled room, and we're all drinking scotch. <laughs> and they said, you've had a very different experience than we did. <laughs> uh, do you still stay in touch with any of your uh, former co-clerks? Oh, yeah. We're, we're on a, a group text. We communicate quite a bit. Um, I actually just did an event with one of them, Judd Stone, who's uh, the Texas Solicitor General. Mm. Um, and so it's it's been fun to work with him in two different roles, you know, once as co-clerks right. and now as... Uh, solicitors general in our in our states. Fantastic. Now, after you finished clerking for Justice Scalia on the Supreme Court, uh, you went into private practice at right. Jones Day, I believe. Uh, what was that experience like? Yeah, so I had actually practiced for a year in between the clerkships at uh, Sidley Austin in Chicago. But then after um, the clerkship, again, I noted we had the, the kid and we were thinking about where we wanted to settle down. Um, and, you know, Justice Scalia actually started his practice in Ohio. He was in Cleveland at Jones Day. Mm -hmm. But we were thinking, you know, Ohio might be a place where I can kind of have the best of both worlds, a little bit easier uh, lifestyle, but still be able to do the appellate work that I wanted to do. And the justice was very encouraging of that. Um, 
so yeah, we, we looked in Ohio and Columbus ended up making the most sense for my wife and I, she was able to get an MBA at Ohio state. Uh, Jones day has an office there so I could practice appellate law. And I, you know, I had a wonderful experience at Jones day. It was, uh, wonderful people, many friends that I still have to this day, mentors like Shai Dvoretsky, who's now at Skadden, was an appellate uh, lawyer that I did a lot of work with at Jones Day um, and taught me a lot. Again, kind of like with Judge Akuta, Justice Scalia, just watching him and how he worked. And even from my peers, um, you know, it was just an incredible group of people uh, who did who did really good work. And, um, you know, I, I was having a lot of fun there. Uh, before I took this job. Well, fantastic. Did you get to do any arguments while you were at Jones Day? I did. I did four, I believe. Um, and I want to say two in the Ninth Circuit, one in the Seventh Circuit, and one in a Florida state court. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, how did your appointment uh, as Ohio's Solicitor General come about? So I, it's sort of like how with uh, with my clerkship with Justice Scalia, I don't really know for sure. Uh, I put my name <laughs> in the running and it worked out. But um, you know, as an appellate attorney in Columbus, it was a goal of mine. I had admired the work of uh, Eric Murphy, who's now Judge Murphy on the Sixth Circuit. He was doing just phenomenal work in that office, but he'd been uh, nominated for the Sixth Circuit. So I knew there'd be an opening, and uh, my current my, my boss, uh, Attorney General Dave Yost, uh, was just elected. And so, um, you know, once he was elected, I reached out to the relevant people and said, you know, I understand there's a lot of competition, but I'd love to be considered for this. Uh, it's just a dream job. You know, you're representing the state. You care a lot about doing very meaningful work. Um, so I was hopeful, but you know, it's a job a lot of people want. So sure, didn't particularly know if it'd work out, but I interviewed, and uh, thankfully, he took a took a chance on me. Well, excellent. Well, it seems like you made a very good choice, Ben. Well, I, <laughs> so, I'll, I, I think he would have to answer that. I don't want to speak for him, but I'm I'm I'm, I'm very grateful, and he's been uh, really just so supportive of. The work we do, the work the whole office does, but it's been a lot of very rewarding to work from him and learned a lot from him. Well, speaking of the office, how many lawyers are in the SG's office in Ohio? Uh, (laughs) The exact count keeps changing, but it's about um, uh, 10 to 11. So, and we really have two units we have an opinions unit that issues opinions to county prosecutors, to state agencies about issues of state law. And then the thing people maybe think of a little bit more when they think of the SG's office is our appeals unit. Mm. Uh, and that has uh, more people, um, quite a few deputies, and we have a uh, my chief deputy. And one of the deputies every year is uh, a Karras fellow. Cy Karras was a lawyer in our office for a long time. It's named in his honor. Um, and it is a fellowship. It's kind of the Ohio equivalent of what the federal solicitor general calls the Bristow Fellowship where we take recent appellate clerks and offer them the opportunity to work as a deputy for a year. And, you know, I'm cognizant of the fact that when people come off clerkships, they oftentimes could, you know, go get a big bonus, make a lot of money. Uh, State government can't offer as much of that, but what you can offer is a really good experience. So um, we take these young lawyers, and I generally just throw them into the deep end of the pool, and they do an argument. I think the last several have done five and six arguments wow. um, over the course of their year. So try to make it uh, uh, a worthwhile experience. So if there are any listeners here that are doing or plan to do a clerkship, um, they should definitely think about the Karis Fellowship in Ohio when they're done. That's fantastic. Uh, and we can put a link to that in our show notes as well. Uh, oh, that's great. Appreciate it. 
Um, so what's a day in the life like for you, Ben, as Ohio's SG? Uh, well, my wife and I had a, a third child recently, so the day starts early. <laughs> um, but once a I get little to sleep, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> once I get to work, um, it, you know, it, it depends. We have a lot of cases going on at any one time, both uh, – I shouldn't say both. In the Ohio Supreme Court, we have cases where the state's a party and we're frequently representing the state. We have cases where um, a county prosecutor is bringing a direct prosecution and we will often file amicus briefs. At the Sixth Circuit, we have all kinds of challenges. They can be big constitutional challenges. They can be uh, disputes about you know, workplace discrimination against a state employer or sure. something like that. And then, of course, the Supreme Court of the United States. So at any given time, we have all these cases uh, sort of uh, festering. And what I focus on at any one time just sort of depends on what's due. I have, if I have an argument coming up, I'm usually pretty uh, focused on that. Um, I will often have my deputies, almost always have my deputies do the first draft of a brief and we'll go back and forth quite a few times, um, you know, keeping in mind that like the bosses I admired, I try to create an environment where they feel comfortable telling me when I'm wrong. I tell them, I tell everybody when they first start, if they're new, and I told everyone else who's already there when I started that I really want to know if I'm wrong when we're drafting the brief and not when I'm at the podium in court. Uh, so <laughs> they should be encouraged to push back. Sounds like sound advice. Yeah, and, they, and, and you know, I have a great team, and they do that. And there have been times where they've urged me to reconsider something, and I have, and it was the right move. So I really value uh, their, their insight, and they do, they do tremendous work. Um, so sometimes I'm preparing them for an argument. They do many arguments themselves. With them, you know, We do internal moots. Right. And we're actually lucky because the – Supreme Court of Ohio used to be in the same building that the Ohio Attorney General's office is in now. They've since moved, and the old courtroom is used for hearings for administrative boards and things like that, but we can use it for our moot courts. Oh, excellent. So we have an actual courtroom uh, for our moot courts, which is uh, we're just very fortunate to have that. I don't think too many offices, even large law firms, uh, have have that going for them. So we're very grateful to be doing that. And then, of course, uh, in addition to reviewing the opinions drafts and reviewing the draft briefs and getting ready for argument, I'm often working with other states. Uh, a lot of states mm. will team up on amicus briefs or in as parties in litigation. And sometimes we're drafting the brief, and I'll be circulating that to the states and soliciting uh, joinders by their states. Sometimes right. they're taking the lead, and uh, I'm reviewing uh, the phenomenal work that my peers around the country do and, and making advice, uh, recommendations to the attorney general on whether it would make sense for Ohio to sign on or not. Um, so that, that there is no well, – one thing I like about this job and appellate law in general is there's no really typical day in the life. You know, It's always a different subject matter. Right. There are some tasks I'm often dealing with, but the, it's fun to learn about a new area of law just about every week, you know. Sure. Well, that's fantastic. Now, I know you've argued several high-profile cases, uh, including recently one involving the OSHA vaccine mandates at the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. Could you tell us about your experience arguing that case and uh, maybe some of the hiccups <laughs> that happened yeah, along the way? might be more accurate to say I argued to the Supreme Court rather than <laughs> at it. But, uh, so um, this was, for those who don't know, OSHA in late 2021 issued a rule that would have effectively required um, most 
employees of large businesses to get vaccinated. There was an option to mask and test, but it was not practical for most people and expensive. So um, Ohio, along with many other states, argued that OSHA lacked the authority to promulgate this. And it complicated process. It ended up in the Sixth Circuit. Ohio ended up taking the lead. And it involves some uh, ping pong balls, I believe. That's or bingo my balls. understanding. Yeah. <laughs> it's they, so these are filed. These challenges are filed in circuit courts. And then there uh, is a lottery held in which every circuit in which a challenge was filed, which was probably every circuit, maybe, maybe right. not the federal circuit, but every every pretty much every circuit had one. The Sixth Circuit was chosen. We happened to be doing the work, some of the work on this on the uh, the Sixth Circuit coalition, and ended up taking the lead uh, for all the states at that point. So, but the Sixth Circuit was chosen through by. By ping pong balls. By ping pong balls, right. The ball with six circuit on it was was chosen, is my understanding. (laughs) Um, So, you know, eventually it makes its way to the Supreme Court. Uh, We sought an emergency – we filed an emergency application, sought emergency relief. And, you know, one day I was at – I think it was around 6 o'clock at night. I was at home and um, I get an email, my work email, and it has a red exclamation point. I opened it up. It was from the Supreme Court. It said, argument is set for January 7th, which I think was – a little over two weeks away. I said, oh, wow. And they chose our case along with a uh, case brought by a private company uh, or private group, I should say. Sure. Um, so immediately started getting ready for argument. Uh, unfortunately, at the same time, uh, around the same time, contracted COVID at an incredibly <laughs> mild asymptomatic case. And I, in fact, I didn't know I had it then. Um, but uh, you know, that wouldn't have been too big a deal, except the Supreme Court um, was and still is requiring advocates to take a PCR test before argue, the day before argument right. to prove that they're negative. Um, I knew I would be okay by the argument day, but I did not know if I would test positive because PCR tests can come back positive after you've right. overcome the illness. For some period of time. For some period of time. Right. They said up to 90 days, I think, uh, potentially. Um, so I, I knew that there was a chance that, uh, I was going to test positive. And if you tested positive, the court required you to argue remotely mm. by phone. So the good news is I at least knew it was a possibility. So I was able to prepare instead of flying to DC, I drove out from Ohio okay. so that I wouldn't be stuck there. Um, uh, it, should I test positive, um, and you know, brought the equipment I needed from my phone, right. um, and sure enough, unfortunately, tested positive. So I had to uh, – I, I did argue in D.C., but I was in my hotel room rather than the Supreme <laughs> Court uh, presenting presenting argument by phone, um, which was uh, certainly a unique experience. But, you know, look, I would have preferred to be there in person, but any time you can work on a case like that, it's very rewarding, and I'm, I'm grateful I had the opportunity. I have – Argued there in person in the month since, so that was that was Fantastic. nice to just get that experience. Now, did the uh, court artist do a sketch of your argument from your hotel room? <laughs> I, or? I did not get a sketch. No. <laughs> I felt bad for my uh, uh, my deputy uh, May Mailman was one of the lawyers on the case, and she was going to second share the argument, and it would have been her first time doing that. And I, I guess she probably could have gone into the courtroom, but it would have been weird without right. the lawyer there, so the, the arguing lawyer there. So um, her second chair duties consisted of sitting in the hallway outside my hotel room, making sure nobody knocked on the door or anything. <laughs> so I, I felt very, I felt bad, more badly for her than anything else that um, she didn't get to 
to go to the courtroom, but right. uh, hopefully sometime we'll, yeah, we'll get her back there. Still a memorable experience, maybe just not in the way <laughs> she intended. <laughs> Certainly memorable, and you know, the good news is we won the case, right. that was the most important thing. Um, uh, you know, and just incredibly grateful that through all this good luck I've had with getting the clerkships and having AGO select me to fill this role, uh, to having our application among the many applications chosen for argument, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd found a way to get into this position where I could do something that uh, was meaningful and really rewarding and I think helped a lot of people. Fantastic. Well, Ben, I have a final question for you. It's a question we ask all of our guests here on SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> the truth is probably just go back and talk with Justice Scalia about anything because it was so much fun, but I want to give you something a little bit a little bit different <laughs> since I already sung his praises. You know, I, I would love to um, talk to the first Justice Harlan about his dissent mm. in Plessy. Um, what, what, what led him to that view? You know, we're often talking about the original re- meaning of the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment, and um, he has just such a beautiful um, description of what that clause guarantees to right. the American people. Learning more about, you know, how he came to that view and what went into writing that opinion uh, would, uh, I think, be just fascinating. Fantastic. Well, Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on SCOTUS 101. It's been a great conversation, and we'd love to have you back again in the future. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, John, since John Carlo is out of the office uh, frolicking this week, uh, you are on the hot seat for trivia uh, today. And since we're getting close to the end of the court's term, I thought it'd be interesting to take a look at what a typical summer vacation might look like for the justices. Are you ready? As ready as I'm going to (laughs) be. That's my (laughs) usual response. (laughs) All right. To start off with, which current member of the court before joining it allegedly said that, quote, only Supreme Court justices and school children are expected to and do take the entire summer off. And just to give you a little context, uh, this pre-court justice uh, was opposing the then Chief Justice Warren Burger's idea of creating a new intermediate federal appellate court to ease the burden on overworked Supreme Court justices. Ooh, a current justice said this before joining the court. Well, it's a, it's a pretty witty and, and slightly snarky statement. Uh, it's the kind of statement that Elena Kagan or John Roberts might say. I'll, I'll go with Kagan. That was a good guess. You were in the ballpark, though. It was actually uh, Chief Justice John Roberts. Uh. My alternative. You were close. You were close. Uh, Apparently, uh, John Roberts said that the complaints about overworked justices are, quote, enough (laughs) to bring tears to the eyes. (laughs) And I'd be very curious to know if he uh, still feels the same way (laughs) today. Now, of course, the Supreme Court says that the justices are working year-round, even when they are out of the building, uh, and that they are reviewing motions, reviewing cert petitions, and are preparing for the upcoming terms arguments. Uh, So they do have a lot on their plate. Uh, Yeah, I guess they do. All right. Fair enough. But they're entitled to some break. (laughs) (laughs) I guess so. Justices and school children, (laughs) at least. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. Next up, uh, what legal scholar, uh, and as a hint, uh, he was a founding member of the Federalist Society, mm-hmm. has been critical of the justices' summer activities and has suggested reintroducing circuit riding during the summer months as a way to, quote, rein in the justices' transatlantic legal dalliances while <laughs> also encouraging aged, life-tenured justices to retire. Wow. Uh, <laughs> no strong views there. <laughs> well, it, it it really could be any of them, except for you said this was a legal scholar. Right. So I'll go with Steve Calabrese. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, it was Steve Calabrese, and he published uh, his thoughts in a 2006 essay in the Minnesota Law Review entitled, Reintroducing Circuit Writing, a Timely Proposal. Transatlantic legal balances. I like it. <laughs> I'll have to try to work that into a uh, an op-ed uh, later <laughs> this year. All right. Very good. All right. Next up, which Supreme Court justice, who is an avid Yankees fan, joined the team's rowdy bleacher creature fans to take in a game uh, during one of her summer vacations several years ago? Uh, and I understand that she's a huge Aaron Judge fan. That would be, that'd be Justice Sonia Sotomayor. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And it was kind of funny. I was reading an interview uh, about this experience, and one of the fans who sat next to her said afterwards uh, that he didn't think she knew quite what she had gotten herself into uh, when she showed up to watch the game with the uh, rowdy bleacher crowd. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I got that a, a lot of beer is thrown and, and choice words are used to describe the opposing team. Do you mean Yankees fans would be rowdy? I'm shocked. I'm shocked. <laughs> uh, Imagine that. I know. Well, very good. Uh, you're doing well uh, on questions two and three. All right. Our final question today, and I think this is a relatively easy one uh, because it's well known, uh, but which justice uh, is known for taking road trips during the summer months in his RV? <laughs> well, I, he had a birthday yesterday, uh, actually. So uh, a, a, a happy birthday to Justice Clarence Thomas. And I hope that he and Ginny <laughs> hit the road this summer and have a great time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, he, you know, it's interesting because he said that during uh, some of his RV road trips, uh, they've even partaken in the RV tradition of spending the night in a Walmart parking lot <laughs> with other absolutely. campers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> if you're on the road this summer in a Walmart parking lot, keep your eyes peeled. You may see uh, Justice Clarence Thomas. <laughs> well, that's it uh, for today. Uh, thanks to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we would very much appreciate it if you would leave us a five-star rating. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. And John, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.